My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent the last three years working as an FA-licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host, Rupert Meadows, has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. Lots to discuss this week as we draw to the end of the season. The relegation scrap seems to have a final few twists in it yet, and the contest for European positions has only been intensified by this week's cast ruling that Man City will be able to play in next season's Champions League. A lot to talk about. Yeah, I mean, definitely everyone's been treating the sort of European battle as though fifth place is going to be the final position to qualify for the Champions League and so that the Europa League will have an extra position, or not an extra position, but bumps down one space as well. Sure. Um, so it's really made things, um, you know, a lot more interesting, especially with that trio of Leicester, Man United and Chelsea. But we'll we'll move on to that later. To go to the uh, cast ruling, which was centred around financial fair play, um, it's been a really interesting week um, in terms of that, because I think financial fair play is just an interesting topic to discuss in and of itself. Uh, Definitely, you know. and, and there's a lot to break down within it. Um, and I feel like probably the, the first place to start is, is whether or not, you know, we think that that decision was justified for Man City. And I think arguably, there's not even arguably, no, it was not justified that they've gotten away with just a £9 million fine. Yeah, I think the issue that people can conflate it with is whether or not financial fair play is in its, you know, is itself a good rule. Um, personally, just just from my, you know, and I don't think that financial fair play is a great rule. I think that every football fan in the world, if given the option to see their team spend two hundred million pounds in a window, would take that. But regardless, the rules are in place. So if the rules are then broken, you know, a lot of people have said like, oh, CES have cleared them because they did nothing wrong, but. There is still a fine, so there is some wrongdoing, and a lot, a lot of the you know evidence that was ruled out was because it was time barred, not because it was ruled to not be you know not not, not evidence against them. So also, it's one of those and things. And also, that's... not just um the other part, the ones that weren't time barred were done because there was insufficient evidence to conclude, not that there was no evidence. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's a bit of a technicality, but I think. It's one of those things. I was reading uh, an article, rereading rather. There's an article that a good friend of ours, um, Xavier Bird, has, has written, um, doing quite a compu- uh, you know humorous comparison between um, financial fair play and Bong Joon Ho's Parasite, the Academy Award-winning movie um, sure. of last year. Okay. And sort of, you know, talking mostly about like wealth disparity and how financial fair play also has wealth disparity and how oftentimes this wealth disparity is you know amplified by you know, drawing a line around the rich clubs and not letting the poorer, poorer or poorer, you know, demographics join in. And I think that's kind of what's happened here with financial fair play, because, you know, what, what financial fair play and clearly the application of it against City here has done is it means that the big rich clubs can still kind of do what they want, but they just have to be more intelligent about it. So, you know, certainly with PSG, you know, they brought... Uh, Mbappe and Neymar in during the same window who are currently the number one and number two most expensive transfers in football history but the way they got around it was they structured the Mbappe deal so that it was a loan to be paid next season yeah um City for example uh when they signed uh the naming rights deal for their stadium now the Etihad stadium it was a rights deal worth double the previous world record set by Madison Square Gardens in, in New York which if you think about you know how much attendance it gets and and how much it's sort of featured relative to some of the other large uh, stadiums to be a little bit more maybe you could see but to be twice as big as the next the next best one 
And it's only compounded by the fact that yeah, the chairman of Etihad Airways is Sheikh Mansur's half-brother. So it's difficult to look at that and not think mm, there's a bit of dodgy going on there. But if they can get away with it on a technicality, which they have, all it means is that the clubs that don't have these sort of loopholes to jump through are sort of prevented from improving themselves. True. And, and obviously, you know, I think that ultimately I, I read a... Um an interesting article by Gary Neville, actually, where he talks about how it's a good idea, financial fair play, but they've really got to look at themselves because the application of it has not been professional enough. And yeah. UEFA has not been professional enough. And ultimately, they've come across a like a, a club with big pockets who can hire great lawyers, and they've won the case. Yeah, and, and it's it's interesting because it goes at UEFA's sort of inability to apply it. Another point raised in this article that I mentioned, which, by the way, is on a website called The Winged Register, if anyone wants to read it for themselves, um, talks about how the man who rolled out financial fair play in 2011-12 was Michel Platini. Michel Platini is currently sure. barred from the sport for eight years for corruption. So if that's the sort of system you have in place implementing these rules, what hope do you have for the rules to be, you know all-encompassing and free from exploitation well absolutely and i mean yeah this as you said goes just in the line of, of a long line of mistakes made or not mistakes made but questionable decisions made uh in uefa's and fifa's history um you know it's fun to argue about this i look forward to seeing you in 2022 in qatar hmm yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's a really weird sort of not quite straight thing. And I also think it's a little bit almost patronising. I mean, I know there have been examples of this happening, but I do think it's a little bit patronising that it was framed as this way to protect clubs from overspending, as if sort of without you know UEFA being the guiding light, these clubs would just spend themselves into bankruptcy. Especially if you consider that, you know, without proper collaboration between UEFA and the football leagues that it affects things can still happen. I mean, if you look at Wigan very recently, they've been failed horribly by the EFL and they're in financial trouble. Um, so this idea of protecting smaller clubs only works if you have like a, a global front and everything works together. Otherwise, all you're doing is you are potentially saying to these clubs, you know, how could a Southampton or a, you know, West Ham hope to ever compete in terms of just squad addition. And in the next few years, I mean, we've already seen City and United leading the charge here, but I'm sure all the all the top teams as well. The, the gap could potentially just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you look at the Premier League, the difference between a team like Man City and, and Norwich is, I mean, this is the reason why Man City go out and regularly get some 5 nils. They had two this week, 8 nils, 6 nils. So I just don't think it's, you know, if you're going to do it, it's got to either be for everyone, which it clearly isn't, or it's financial foul play, not financial fair play. Yeah, it's a good point. And yeah, you're right that if they're not being enforced, then there's nothing to, to protect against these rules just being vagrantly broken, which they have been. Um, yeah. The other thing that I would say, though, is that, for example, um, the winners of the championship in 2013, 14 and 15, which is QPR, Leicester and Bournemouth, all got charged for financial fair play and all were fined in the region of around five to ten million pounds for mm. for their crimes. So I think, yeah, I mean, that was part of City's appeal, wasn't it? The severity of, of the punishment. But I suppose the severity, you know, directly uh, scales to, to the, the thing of the punishment. You know, if you steal a chocolate bar from the shop, 
you might get a slap on the wrist. If you steal a car, you're probably going to prison. True, and yeah, I think, I mean, the main larger point I think I want to make is just that they broke the rules, they got fined a little bit of money, but they're in the Premier League. The Champions League, yeah. And no, I mean those three championship sides. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's true. And um, Man City, again, broke the rules heavily, got fined, and they're still in the Champions League, and it means nothing to them. That money that's the is, thing. is pennies on the dollar. What's the point in implementing these rules in the first place if they're not going to be enforced? Because all, all then they've done is punish the teams that have adhered to the rules, effectively. Um, so, but yeah, it's, I guess it's, the, the main thing really is going to be interesting to note in the coming months and the coming years is whether or not there's any response from UEFA to this ruling. If they turn around and say, even internally, we recognise that we should have been able to charge them and we fell short, we need to tighten up these regulations. Or if they just go, well, you guys got away with it. Yeah, I mean, what you would hate to see is sort of people react to this city news and go, well, financial fair play is not that big a deal. And then some poor club uh, that does a minor infraction gets made an example of. Um, because I think if you're going to enforce it, it should be for it, not just the ability for the richer teams to be able to circumvent the rules with clever moving around of money and the smaller sides not getting a chance to stop the gap widening. But um, uh, speaking of the gap widening and the disparity between top and bottom, uh, the relegation dogfight is uh, really, really still um, still hot. I thought that it might have wrapped up this week. Um, definitely looked that way, um, and certainly has for one team. But there's still a couple of things to be settled. But looking at the team that did get relegated, Norwich. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, as you said, Norwich are definitely the odd ones out in that other teams' fortunes have definitely uh, gone through peaks and troughs over these two game weeks. Um, and Norwich's has been written in stone for for quite some time now and all that's left is you know obviously there's no proverbial engraving in the in the trophy because they've they've won nothing but yeah i think um yeah this was seen coming for a while well it's you know consecutive games against fellow relegation contenders probably represents their best chance of a last gasp turnaround um because you know win here and it's not just points gained but it's also points taken from your direct rivals um, but they lost both games, uh, one of them in spectacular fashion, and they've capped off seven consecutive defeats. Um, you know, the most fitting way to summarise the season for me is what sent them down. It was West Ham, who have, by all accounts, been struggling since the restart, put yeah. in the most dominant performance. You know, Mikel Antonio got four, and he's the first player to do that for West Ham in the Premier League. Um, Susek looked great as well. Um, it could have been more than four, actually. Like, there were several different instances of the four goals that were scored was you know a generous scoreline to Norwich I, I thought definitely they could have had more I remember Arnautovic had a great chance um lovely volley like yeah West Ham pressed really well and they look like a different team because Norwich allowed them to be a different team um yeah and I think D Daniel Fark himself and I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the manager um because I think it's really interesting how Norwich were the team that won the championship and yet they're the side that have struggled the most in vast contrast to Sheffield United sure. who, who, who weren't the winners um, I just wanted to talk a little about that um, Daniel Fark versus Chris Wilder Daniel Fark is a manager who firstly his comments after this game were really not 
uh, convincing or, or not, uh, what's the word, not really inspiring. He came, he came out and he said, first day after promotion, I said our chances to survive in this league and be competitive are 5%. He goes on to say one of his players, uh, or most of his players, most games look like men against boys, which is not really the thing you want to be hearing um, from your fearless leader if you're going back down to the championship. But it does make me think that um, to look at a parallel between Daniel Fark and Chris Wilder, Sheffield United's manager, um, I had a little look at Daniel Fark's managerial career, and it does seem like he has been a manager of a flat-track bully side for all of his career. And I think that informs how Norwich have reacted to big games or even medium games. Um, because I think they just try and take the game to opponents every time. Daniel Falk has managed in his career SV Lipstadt, who are a sixth division side, who got promoted to the fourth division, which if you're being back-to-back promoted, it suggests that you're a team of good sure, quality. Sure, you're doing well. And then, yeah, was Dortmund, Dortmund 2? Yep, Dortmund 2, who play in the fourth division, but have the resources and the training ground and, and the youth product of Borussia Dortmund. And then Norwich in the in the championship. So it's three sides who have all had you know a very good setup. Norwich in terms of championship quality were obviously much more stacked than everyone else. Um, and I think that was reflected in how Norwich took games to opponents. Sometimes you would have shock results like them beating Man City, but a lot of the time it would just go really poorly. To contrast, you've got Chris Wilder. Here's his managerial career: Alfton Town, Halifax, who were liquidated while he was there. Yeah, Oxford United in League Two, Northampton also in League Two, and then Sheffield United. And I think that also translates to the kind of side that we've seen Sheffield be this season. You're right. I mean, definitely contrasting uh, careers, managerially. And it looks like, yeah, Wilder's got fights in him that Daniel Fark doesn't. Um, definitely listening to those comments that he made at the end of the game, it sounds like his only interest is in covering his back and maintaining his reputation and I'm sure he'll be looking to leave very possibly I think it's just a shell shock for him he's been at clubs where it's just been wins 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 and this season for Norwich has been losses 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 um but I think it's it's a really it depends whether or not we take his comments at face value and if he's trying to you know show what it was like from behind the curtain or if yeah. he's trying to rewrite the narrative of his season. Maybe, but I think rewriting the narrative, you know, the one thing that stuck for me was him calling them men against boys. And I think that was really, really a good way to summarise it because Norwich just didn't have any Premier League experience in their squad, really. It was a lot of young players, a couple of players who were sort of a little bit older, but not exactly the, the wisest heads on shoulders. And they didn't really, you know, you've got to prepare to come up and, and have that experience. They didn't do anything in the summer window. They didn't do anything in January. And as a result, it has ended up in that men versus boys type scenario where you've got these players like Mikel Antonio, who, you know, he's he's an old head, technically, like in a lot of ways. He's been in the Prem for three, four seasons, and he knew to turn up today. Um, and even after the match was sort of saying, you know, every point matters, we've got to do this, we've got to do this. Whereas Norwich, they seem to have just given up, which is something you see with... Um, youth football a lot in my experience when a team goes 2-0 down it often goes to 4-5-6-7-0 in youth football because much more frequently drop. than it does yeah. in senior football because the heads drop and they haven't got that experience and they haven't sort of got that that confidence either yeah I, I would definitely agree with you that Norwich have not had the grit or the determination that is absolutely demanded of the Premier League yeah. and of, of the sides that are likely to end up in the bottom half of the table yeah, and, and, and it's, it's paid, they've paid the price pretty dearly. But um, moving on from Norwich, 
onto a team that. So um, the two games were Watford Norwich. Um, ah, yes, yes, of course, yeah. We're just going to do the score lines as we go. Um, score was two one, uh, and I actually predicted two one. You predicted two one for Watford Norwich, so that is three points for you. What was your prediction during that game? I said one nil. To Watford. To Watford, yeah. I, I yeah. thought they were going to. Not, not a million miles off, but not the, quite the right scoreline. And then, uh, of course, Norwich nil, West Ham 4. You went for? Uh, Norwich nil, West Ham 4. I had 1-1, one, one, actually. I had 1-0, West Ham. I did not see it going that way. So, point to you. Point to me. Um, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I, I really saw, I think maybe partly to do with you know West Ham's struggles. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that it was going to be a closer game than it was, I thought. Norwich was still going to have a little bit of fight in them, um, and they just did not. I, I mean, I said 1-0. I didn't think it was going to be a 4-0 romping. Um, moving to Bournemouth, who were sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of opponents, where Norwich had two relegation contenders. Bournemouth had Spurs and Leicester, which is a, a pretty difficult week for anyone, really. Um, granted, both at Bournemouth's ground. Um, and they did quite well, I thought. Oh, if, if you talked to Eddie Howe before this week and told him that he was going to get four points from these games, he would have laughed in your face. Absolutely, yeah. And, and four points, I would say unlucky not to get six. Uh, that's interesting. I, I would slightly push back against that. I, I agree that Tottenham had a poor game, but they also should have had a penalty. They should have had a penalty, but I think Bournemouth had two or three really, really clear-cut chances that granted if they're not scoring then they didn't deserve the goals but it's these tiny margins you know if Harry Wilson had stayed behind to practice his chips on the training ground for five more minutes a week I mean <laughs> that might be the difference between them staying up or not um, yeah was, their expected goals definitely were higher during that game um, um, and then they rolled off the confidence of that off of giving Spurs a good game straight into the Leicester game which was a, a, an absolute domination I mean we spoke last week and the week before about how they've looked very sluggish and not really up for it they'd scored I think about four goals since the break in total and then got four today I I would disagree again I feel like Leicester absolutely gave them that victory mm-hmm. um, they were one nil up Leicester were uh, they looked like they were in control of the game and then the players just absolutely switched off Kasper Schmeichel doesn't make mistakes and yeah, I mean, this, this, the red card for Leicester was definitely a big part of the, uh, the the Bournemouth domination. But even so, you know, Leicester with 10 men, you would probably still have money on Leicester with 10 men beating Bournemouth at 1-1, wouldn't you? So I think, you know, Leicester did fall apart, but you've got to give credit to Bournemouth and maybe finding a little bit of that vigour that we've sort of seen everyone crying out for them to have. Yeah, they did really well to, to dig deep. Um, goals for Dominic Solanke is always nice to see. Um, he's definitely kind of bounced from top clubs and, and struggled to assert himself anywhere. So, you know, hopefully he can build on that towards the end of the season and, and maybe end 2020 on a high. Yeah, his first league goal of the season, I, I believe that was. So, you it know, was indeed. If, if he can, you know, may, maybe get the tail end of a, of a bit of form, could be the difference. Um, what did you have for the uh, games uh, as it goes? So for Bournemouth Tottenham, I guess one nil Spurs. Um, oh, I said 2-0 Spurs. Yeah, so, I mean, I'll take the point, but I'm annoyed because if they'd had that penalty... Yeah. Uh, could have won it. Um, and then the other one... 
Um, I would love to say that I predicted 4-1 Bournemouth. Uh, I called 2-0 Leicester. And I said 3-0 Leicester, so again, a point for you. Point me. It's a good start. It's not a bad start for you. What's that, five points you're on? That's five points I'm on. That's going to be tough. A lot of games, though. A lot of games. Um, Villa were another side that were sort of hoping to get the last of it. It looked like maybe after the West Ham-Norwich game that the bottom three was, uh, you know, decided. But um, obviously starting off their, their week with uh, against the Inform United that we're seeing at the moment was, was not what they needed right now. Um, Absolutely not. And they'll, they'll be disappointed because they had a great chance early on. Trezeguet hit the post. Um, mm. And they also shouldn't have conceded the penalty that they did. Uh, I don't think that was a penalty in anyone's book. Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult, though, just because you can look at some games, for example, the Bournemouth and Spurs game, and go, had this decision gone a little bit differently, we might have seen a completely different outcome. But this was a 3-0, and United were quite dominant. This is true, yeah. And I do wonder, you know, speaking of Norwich's character, do you think that Aston Villa have shown enough grit to stay up? Well, I mean, the second game that they had this week uh, was, of course, picking up three points from Palace, uh, which you kind of have to praise Villa for. But at the same time, Crystal Palace seem to be, they're running a charity shop at the moment. They're giving away points to anyone who comes in, half price. Uh, yeah, they, you know. uh, <laughs> it's um, everything must go. Absolutely. Um, it, it feels like they've just got to the point where they know they're safe and they're just, they're not bothered anymore. <laughs> like, not even like the players, they're just on the beach. And you can't really blame them. I think it's been it's been quite a lackluster season from them, but they also have nothing to worry about, as you said. So they're really just very comfortably sat mid-table and, you know, no one's pushing for any personal accolades. I'm not sure, you know, Zaha might be pushing for a move, so he might be trying to make sure that his performances are, are up to standard. But I yeah, can't think I mean, of any, any other main players that will be challenging in their international sides for example um that's, that, 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 that's it really isn't it doesn't look like they've got a huge amount to play for and that's just as a yeah. result you play palace three points so exactly and and aston villa you know as you said they did well they got two points uh, three points yeah. two goals yeah um, they did but they uh, also you know palace did have a goal disallowed early on sacco um that i think should have been a goal that's true but again you know I suppose not not the biggest margin, but I, I just feel like Villa would have responded if they if they had had a goal. Um, what did you have for the Villa games? So Aston Villa's first game, I predicted three 0 Man U. Yeah, as did I. That's just the score they go for at the moment, isn't it? It's they they seem to like getting three and then sitting back. That seems to be the the flavor of the month. <laughs> and then uh, for the Palace game, uh, which of course ended two 0 to Villa, I went for one 0 to Villa. I went one one. So, point you. I'll take the point. Uh, and it still can turn around here. Uh, Watford are another team that are sort of pulling away. I think Watford and West Ham have started to pull away a little bit. It's not over yet. Obviously, there's still nine points for each you know team to play for. Um, but they started off well. Obviously, they were the other side in the Norwich game. Um, they got a valuable three points. Um, just pretty pretty simple stuff for them. They, did. Well, one, they, but... they conceded early, but um, yeah, they did well to fight back and, and they definitely looked like the more assured, confident side that was always going to get the points. 
But I think, so they, they did fight back and they did much the same against Newcastle. I think it's, this is what has made the difference between them and, say, Bournemouth because they have shown that ability and, and certainly with Norwich, they've shown that ability to go behind and then fight back. So Yeah, and same I think th- the main difference is that it's unprompted. It's their impetus. They're bringing the fight to the opposition whereas Bournemouth, Tottenham just won at the races and they managed to get a point and yeah. Leicester collapsed. Yes, Bournemouth took that opportunity, but Leicester collapsed. Uh, whereas, as you said, you know Watford really went out and, and won those six points. They did, and they earned them. And it was it was hard fought both games. You know, in terms of having to come from behind, but they they earned them well. And I think that may end up being you know what what keep, keeps them up. They have got a really interesting remaining three fixtures. Um, they've got Man City and Arsenal, but next week yeah. they've got West Ham, which is a massive six pointer. It is a big one, isn't it? Um, you know, whoever wins that game is basically going to secure, uh, you know, safety. If indeed anyone does win and it isn't played out as a draw, but you you like to think that maybe there'll be that grip from both sides because of what it represents, um, especially for Watford looking at Man City and Arsenal. Granted, both of those teams are capable of dropping points and surprise upsets, but you wouldn't count on it if you were the Watford's uh, staff, would you? No, and you can't count on it. Uh, you can't expect other teams to to falter even if they do like a good falter um so a lot of a lot of things need to happen before that final West Ham Watford game and it'll be really interesting as we've talked about if it does stay competitive and if it does have a lot riding on it but there's a good chance that it'll already be done and dusted by then the other side of the team is of course West Ham who opened the week uh, by losing to Burnley. We'll wrap around and do the, do the scores because I just wanted to compare these two sides. But a loss at home to Burnley um, when they could have grasped the chance to pull themselves out of the quagmire. It says, says a lot about them this season. Um, it's been a bit of a mixed week for them. Obviously, they had a massive, massive win against Norwich. But it is against Norwich. And you know, even David Moyes acknowledged himself in the post-match interview. He sort of said, well, you know, 4 nils, great to score. You know, no matter who it's against. Sort of even him acknowledging, like, well, it's Norwich, guys. Um, <laughs> And, you know, he's not wrong. It, it is Norwich. Um, sorry, Norwich fans. Um, but it, it is good for them to have that. You know, it's West Ham's first away win since mid-December. Um, and speaking of things that say a lot about where they are in the table. Um, exactly. That, that'll be the, the main one. Um, yeah, I think, I think they did well to bounce back from the Burnley loss and, and be, you know, a, a side that took Norwich to the sword because... You know, you still have to win a game. You still need to score four goals. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch on with you is um, Mikel Antonio. It feels like a good time to talk about him. Um, yeah, I mean, last week... kind of flattered to deceive. Um, but that being said, he has performed well at pretty much every position he's played in. And he has played pretty much every position. He's played right back, left wing back, striker... Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to compare him to who we've talked about before, Wilfred Zaha, and ask if you think that Mikel Antonio deserves a move to a slightly bigger side, someone like an Everton or a Newcastle. Very possibly. I mean, one of his greatest strengths, as you highlighted there, is his you know utility. Um, and I think it's interesting because he is 
not dissimilar, and we also name-dropped him last episode for the same reason, but he's not dissimilar in my mind in terms of attitude to Jamie Vardy, um, because he too, of course, came from non-league, and he is just willing to do whatever it takes to make it work. Uh, yeah, I know absolutely. that he gets a lot of flack from West Ham fans for maybe not being the most consistent player in the world, but he has played all sorts of positions. He does always seem to be putting the effort in. Maybe he doesn't have as much ability as one of the top, top players, but I think in Antonio, you do have a player who is going to give his all and, and do it in numerous different positions. Um, and, and he's, he's not very a, physical, and he can translate those physical attributes to anywhere on the pitch because he's big yeah. and he's quick. You, you would never not want to have a player that had that in their locker in your squad. The ability to have someone who you can play as an out-and-out striker or on the left or on the right or in defence is just really, really valuable. Um, and so, yeah, I could see him getting a move. Uh, at the same time, if you were West Ham and you do stay up, you'd be really wanting to hold on to him as one of the members of that squad, along with Suchek and Jared Bowen, who has been a bit better since the restart. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it'll be really important to keep on hold on to them, especially if they're staying up in the Prem. Now, to round off the relegation teams with our scoring for them. So, what do you have for the Watford games? You're not going to like me. I've, I've called Watford well this week. Uh, I, I predicted a pair of 2-1 wins, and that's what they got. Oh, dear. This is, uh, this is not going well for me here. So, that's another six point. You, like Watford, have picked up six points. Glory. <laughs> so... The relegation battle, still no answers there yet outside of uh, Norwich, but a lot to play for. Another Which is good place... because, you know, I think definitely halfway through, as we said, halfway through the the game, the games this week, we thought it might have been done and dusted, but it's nice that teams are still fighting and there's still everything to play for. And there's still that narrative to, to follow. Um, but the other narrative to follow, of course, is the battle for Europe. Um it now we've learned... And let's get into that um, straight after we do our piece of useless trivia. Of, yeah, of course. Sorry, use, useless trivia. Um, do you want to start or should I? Why don't you go first? So I've gone for a bit of a themed one. Um, obviously, we just discussed the relegation dogfight and the team that have been relegated this week are Norwich, uh, becoming the first side to be relegated from the Premier League five times. And that's not yeah. my stat. We'll all remember... Well, any 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 you know fans of uh, Premier League humour will remember Delia Smith coming out onto the Carrow Road pitch in two thousand and five. Sure. Since then, Norwich have won only forty eight of their one hundred and ninety seven top flight games, which is a twenty four point three percent win percentage. That's low. Stay indoors, Delia. <laughs> um, the loss bringer. Um, I too have gone themed with my piece of trivia this week, um, which is to celebrate the, the better side of Kasper Schmeichel after his bad week. Uh, uh-huh. Did you know that Kasper Schmeichel has saved more Premier League penalties at Old Trafford than his father, Peter Schmeichel, did? Is that right? That's a, that's a really impressive stat, actually. Well, it's, it's one to none, but yeah... <laughs> Even so, like if you, even so, if, yes. if, I, if I was him at like family dinners at the, Schme- at the Schmeichel Christmas, I would just bring that out and they go, "Oh, oh how many penalties? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it." If Casper, if you're listening, use that next family holiday. It's all yours. <laughs> at the Schmeichel family Thanksgiving. Um, That's exactly. uh, well. Speaking of uh, Schmeichel and Leicester and the battle for Europe 
that we were going, going to get on about. Um, really interesting. The top three in terms of the teams that are outside that top two, being Chelsea, Leicester and United, all within a point of each other. Yeah, and it's it's really kind of been a season in miniature this week um, in that everyone's kind of A, jostling for positions and B, hoping that, you know, not even capitalising on other people's mistakes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think um, let's start with Chelsea as, as third place in the table. Um, came up against Crystal Palace in the first one, um, which, you know, they probably would have been hoping to to expend a little less energy than they did. Um, mm. It's definitely a, a close match, well fought by both sides. And were Chelsea lucky to, to get the three points? Uh, I mean, l- lucky maybe in the sense that, you know, Scott Dan hit the post very late on. Um, but I think maybe it was also a case of sort of just doing enough. Um, and I think maybe if it had been a draw, I would have said Chelsea would have been a bit unlucky, actually. Um, I think it's interesting to see some of the grafters at Chelsea, because Chelsea typically you look at as a squad of like, because they're, you know, a side that have won the Premier League so many times uh, in recent years, and because they're a side that are normally such an expensive side, you think of them as like a flair team. But I like looking at games where you've got the hard, you know, the hard grafters, like Willian and, and Giroud, who I think has quietly had a really important role to play since the restart. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. What I would say is that uh, in this game and their following game uh, against Sheffield, which was a little bit more disappointing for them, they really need to sort out the midfield in terms of, you know, when you haven't got Kovacic or Kante playing, Chelsea just looked very flimsy. And I don't think that, certainly not Billy Gilmore, but I also don't think that Jorginho has enough steel to, to carry that. It, it means the midfield falls to pieces and the, the defenders aren't really being shielded. Um, so I think it, it's it's easy to have sort of those issues exposed if they don't have someone in the midfield um well, it's interesting you say that because when listening to frank lampard speak he says that Jorginho is the best trainer in the whole club and he pushes everyone to work harder he is always out there first thing and he's the last one to go in again um so you know in some ways he is a grafter as well but you're right that his his deficiencies have been on display um and Billy Gilmore, for all his uh, upside, isn't ready yet to, to dominate Premier League midfields. And yeah, Certainly Jorginho not that holding role. Because you know? it's, he's run really hot and cold this year. Uh, I think I seem to remember halfway through the season, Chelsea fans were going crazy over how good he has been um, post Maurizio Sarri. Uh, yeah. Whereas beforehand they were saying that, you know, he should probably leave with him because he, he didn't have a role outside of Surrey's system. And then now again, as he's starting to get shown up, uh, fans are just turning on him and saying, you're not good enough, leave. Um, yeah, which I think is difficult. But I, I think he's a decent player, but it's just not that you need that water carrier in the team. He's a luxury and, player. Yeah, and I, I don't think he's the one to do the, the, not necessarily the hard work, but to do the unglamorous work. That, I mean, that's what Kante is not the player who's going to score more than two league goals a season, but he is going to just run and run and run and do the work of two players in the midfield. And even if you do, don't have someone to that degree, you know, you need someone in the midfield to, to do that. It's what Jordan Henderson has been doing for Liverpool and, you know, cementing his place in that side, despite being probably, in terms of just technical ability, the weakest in that squad, um, and yet one of the most important members. Yeah, it's difficult because Chelsea have just been hit with injury and. 
I think Jorginho with Kovacic next to him plays very well. And I think Jorginho mm. with Kante next to him plays very well at most yeah. of the time. Um, but yeah, he can't do it on his own. And being paired with yeah, people like Mason Mount, who again, works very hard, but isn't as isn't, isn't defensively physical, astute. Really. He doesn't have enough experience um, yet. So yeah, I think Jorginho's had a, had a big burden on his shoulders. And also... You know Chelsea's defense have have a lot of questions to answer as well, but yeah. he has shown himself to not be a good enough anchor centre midfielder. I, th- I think that's right. What did you have, incidentally, for these two tricky games for Chelsea? Uh, Palace Chelsea, I guessed two one. I guessed two 0 so you get the point there. Oh, and excellent. I imagine you will here as well, unless you went for a, a big Chelsea win. I went Sheffield one, Chelsea two. I went Sheffield 1, Chelsea 1. Which uh, would give you the result as well. Yeah, I, safe. I thought it was going to be a close match and, and I was proved wrong. Um, <laughs> Sheffield took took them to the sword. Uh, they really did. And they really did. They just set up better than them. And we've talked about Lampard's tactical flexibility before and, and it's good to see that he is able to recognise his mistakes at half-time and change the whole system. And it's good that he can change the system with just one or two subs, but it's not good that he got it wrong. That's the th- that's the thing I think always merits. You know, it, it's people people often like praise managers for making the right subs, and that can be true sometimes if it's like you bring on a striker and they score the winner. Sure. But a lot of the times when people are saying, "Oh, this manager's really good at making subs," you're kind of just saying they're not very good at picking their starting eleven. So yeah, it, agreed. It's it's it's. it's Double-edged, but um, but we'll 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 move into further discussion of that game in Sheffield uh, as we move down the spots. But first, on to Leicester, who you'd say have had a bit of a disappointing week. I think they should definitely be disappointed in this week. One point from two arguably winnable games. Hmm. I mean, I think the Arsenal game was it was sort of classic Arsenal. Really, they didn't get themselves together and, and left themselves vulnerable for Leicester. Um, and Vardy just did what Vardy does, you know. I mean, he's he's Mr. Reliable always, but this season more, more than most. Um, but now they're sort of worrying. I mean, this time a couple of weeks ago, we were sort of going, well, you know, will Leicester drop out of the top four? Will they? I mean, there's still that safety blanket of fifth place, but now that's been whipped away. It's entirely possible Leicester don't get Champions League football next season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, is Brendan Rodgers a bottle job? I just think he... he can start well and he can middle quite well but finishing has never been his strong suit I mean you know famously his best performance in the Premier League was with that Liverpool side that looked really really good throughout 75% of that league campaign looked like they were just absolutely the top side and then it all just went to pieces at the final final 15 minutes yeah absolutely and, and I think it you know the, the Bournemouth thing Conceding four goals and a half to Bournemouth, granted they had ten men, but the only time Bournemouth have scored four goals in a game this entire season was in an FA Cup match against Luton Town, who had second bottom in the championship. They should have been dancing between bottom and second bottom. So Bournemouth have not exactly been a side that you've got to fear offensively this season. Yeah, that's that's not a favourable stat for Leicester. And Leicester conceded four goals, not just over the course of a game, but over the course of a half, which really, you know, to me, suggests that they need to get their stuff together. Um... And maybe that's something they can work on next season. Because it's all, all well and good to start well and, and continue well. But unless you're Liverpool, who've wrapped up the league in February, you also need to finish well. So Yeah, agreed. I, I do wonder, though, you know, it, it felt to me watching 
these Leicester games and also the Arsenal games that, that we'll get into later, I just think teams are tired. I think that this is new territory for them in that they have had, as, as we've talked about, three months of no matches and suddenly they're playing two a week every week and they just don't seem seem up for it. They don't seem like they're, they're able to, or at least some don't seem like they're able to, to maintain their form and fitness. Well, I think it's you qualified it there by saying some, and I think that's why it's you can look at it as sort of a team by team. Because if everyone had come back and we saw like a league-wide sluggishness and teams sort of coming back and not really looking and, and the quality in general was just poor, yeah, okay, you'd have to say like it's just an issue. But United, I mean, unless they're, you know, <laughs> unless they're, they're doing something in the dressing room, they, they've come out like rockets and they've just been really, really confident coming out. You know, Sheffield started slow but have, have like really built on that confidence Wolves have just been coming out and, and not dropping points except for the Arsenal game but just have just been looking really good as well um, so I think if some teams can do it there's precedent for the other teams to have also done it you know City another one um, have been just putting together some massive displays I think they scored was it 14 goals across three matches sure if you if you so you know yeah, I, 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 I get that I just wonder if it speaks but... to squad depth more than it does to mentality maybe but i i don't know i I feel like i feel like it's it's understandable for teams to be a little bit sluggish but that cuts both ways right so if you're playing a team that's also sluggish surely it should even out well you think think so and and i think it does even out at times you know lesser arsenal both teams that i would categorize as sluggish drew 1-1 yeah, yeah, that's that's true, and and I think, but that's a good example, I think, of like these two teams have come out. But you know that if either of these teams came up against, say, the current form of Man United, it'd be a very different story. Because or they even wouldn't... Wolves or Sheffield, I think. Um, yeah, would not take agree. To the sword. I, well, except for obviously, Arsenal seemed to wake up against Wolves last week, but you know, you you wouldn't bet on them. You you wouldn't be confident in in, in them winning. Um, I'm not if, sure if I bet on any Arsenal game. <laughs> Good idea. Um, what did you have for Leicester's games? Uh, I predicted 2-2 for Leicester Arsenal. Um, just a 1-1-1. One, one, one. I had 2... Oh, you predicted 2-2? Two, two. Yeah. I said 2-1. Did you? Point you. Well done. So, well, yeah. I mean, I called the uh, result. But it's like Sheffield Spurs last week, yeah. Shaking my fist, Cameron. Uh, we already direction. did Bournemouth Leicester, I believe. So, we already we did Bournemouth from, Leicester. That is correct. From that, so moving on to uh, you know a, a team who have been consistent, uh, consistently great, but um, you know just just great to talk about. United three 0 versus Villa. Um, we covered it mostly in the um, uh, you know Villa Villa section of the podcast, but then a little bit of a trip up. Um, first time we've seen them not quite look at their best. A 2-2 draw at home to Southampton. Yeah, well, I actually... Um, watching this game, I did wonder if we hadn't seen an early indication of perhaps what could be their real floor in midfield, which is mm-hmm. Paul Pogba picking the ball up from deep. Um, because it was how they conceded their first goal. Paul Pogba got dispossessed. Yep. And... Um, that happened actually twice early on. The first time led to a goal, the second time they managed to recover. And it's also what happened early in the Aston Villa game when Trezeguet robbed Pogba of the ball and hit the post, hit the post yeah. early on. 
So I, I do wonder if teams aren't starting to work out that that's how you can bring the fight to them. That's where you pressure. Very possibly. I mean, the first goal for Southampton was an interesting one because it was, as you say, Pogba gets sort of robbed in midfield and then Maguire loses his man to come back, you know, and, and mark him in a season. He's unmarked for the goal. You know, those two players between them are £180 million, but oftentimes you come out, and certainly this week, they play like £18 million worth of player. Um, we've looked a lot over the last few weeks, and everyone has just the, the shining example that Bruno Fernandes has been for that club. But he's just one man. If he gets injured next season, yeah. you know, if, if United haven't figured out what to do without him, are they going to be in trouble? Because even when he's not, you know, assisting or scoring, the Martial-Fernandes combination was, was what kept it brought about to 2-1 for United if Fernandes picks up a knock does does the dream end for United is it suddenly you know it's like a Cinderella's carriage turning back into a pumpkin I think yes they don't have a player like Bruno Fernandes in the squad I think Fernandes is the player that they hoped Juan Mata would be Um, you know that creative across the front final third Um, and he brings together and gets the best out of all of their star attackers, Marshall, um, Rashford, and, and now also, I, I want to put Greenwood in there as well because he's been mm. incredible. Um, and yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that without Fernandes in there to link together the midfield and attack through Pogba and, and through these wingers and strikers, I don't think Man U play nearly as well as as they have. And we saw that. they Fernandes went off and they conceded late. Yeah, they lost all shape as soon as Fernandes came off. And we already touched on a similar issue with Kevin De Bruyne at Man City or or James Madison at Leicester. Putting that much reliance on on a linchpin is just so dangerous. Obviously, when everything's working together and everyone's fit and everything's firing on all pistons, amazing. But then if that player gets injured, if that player gets, you know, cautioned and and has to serve a ban, what are you going to do? Collapse? Yeah, and and that is what they do. The other thing that I want to touch on is another VAR decision. And there have been three or four really bad decisions made by VAR this week alone uh, over these two game weeks. And Romeo should have been sent off and the game's dead at that point. Yeah, but but I think so. So this is this is the thing I, I always find about VAR because people will complain about VAR till the cows come home. I think you know football breeds a lot of like traditionalism, which I can I can appreciate. There's something really sort of no you know romantic about the whole sort of grassroots thing of football, just a sure. ball and two jumpers for goalposts. But the thing with VAR is that all VAR is a system where referees are able to you know use use cameras to aid themselves. So if there are problems with the way that VAR is being applied, it's not because of the screens. Like the screen isn't malfunctioning and showing the right. It's because of the people who are using it. There's a reason why VAR has been completely fine in Italy, completely fine in Germany, amazing in the World Cup. Not I didn't hear a single complaint about VAR until it was used in the Premier League. For sure. And so I think people need to sort of refocus what their issue with you know the, the the. the technology is because it's not an issue with technology i think ultimately maybe it has a little bit of teething problems as everything does but ultimately enabling a better look at things and a more accurate decision can only be a good thing the problem well, is that you, referees you in this so, country yeah. just it makes no sense that it would be a bad system i completely agree with you but it's just being used really poorly the implementation has been so bad um, yeah really really poor you've got to wonder like what's it there for if it's if it's, you know, intervening in these decisions and getting it wrong all the time. 
Yeah. No, it's... it's um, because, you know, we one. talked about Kane's penalty. We've talked about um, Manchester United's penalty. We talked about Oil Romeo's red card. Uh, James Ward-Prowse also won a penalty, um, Everton versus Southampton, that he shouldn't have had. He was already going yeah. down when he went into the box. And, yeah, these, these examples are, are littering these game weeks. But, but that's it exactly, though, is that only in, only in England are we able to use better technology to make worse decisions. <laughs> um, we should but, do um, like an only in England segment. <laughs> honestly. Uh, I don't want uh, to do that. I'm, I'm depressed enough as it is. What did you have for this game? I went for 2-0 to United. Um, I went for 2-1 to United, I believe. Which puts you... Uh, again, another point. I'm looking at my points tally here, and I'm I'm actually getting a little bit worried about the reveal because I think this is going to be like a Man City versus Watford type situation. <laughs> do you want to um, do, um, do, do a quick check now, or, or save? No, 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 no. I, I, I want I want the pain to come in one big shot. I don't want to be sort of like get relegated early and then limp to the end. Um, Wolves, uh, Wolves and Sheffield, obviously um, played each other. Never going to be a high-scoring game that. Um, both sides are, you know, disciplined outfits that have been characterised by, you know, their ability to suffocate opposition. They can go out and bag them, as we saw from both teams' fixtures later in the week. But, Absolutely. you know, what they like to do, if they can, is just shut the other team down. And accordingly, this game ended 1-0 in uh, the home side's favour, Sheffield. It did indeed, yeah. And as you said, you know, Wolves, for all of their attacking talent, um, love a clean sheet. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and they did well to hold out a Sheffield side that, as we've talked about, is just going from strength to strength. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think this is an unpredictable result. I think it's about right in terms of what we know and what we've discussed of of these two teams. Yeah, and I think, it, it you know, it was one of those games that you really could look at it and go, on a different day, could have been the exact same score in reverse. Um, it's sure. just that Sheffield did the, did the job better today. Um, but Wolves bounce back after this result to fire three goals in with no reply against Everton. Um, Raul Jimenez was one of these scorers. This season, he has the same amount of league goals with 16 as Sergio Aguero, Sadio Mane and Anthony Martial. Some pretty good company there. Very good company. I mean, I, I would I would disassociate Sergio Aguero from Mane and Martial um, just because they're, all, they're kind of wingers turned sometimes strikers and... They have not had the same level of consistent output of goals as as the city target man, but yeah, he's in great company and he's had a, he's had an amazing season. Um, he's had a great. It's, it's, it's a name that you don't hear said that much, but he is you know one of those you know Portuguese contingent players that's been really really effective for Wolves and um, you know despite the loss to Sheffield, they still sit a point ahead of them. They're in the last remaining European place. They're two points ahead of Tottenham. They're five points ahead of you know Arsenal. The the position is theirs to lose at the moment. And of all the teams that you would expect to drop points, Wolves are probably the last. Absolutely, they they seem to be one of one of the most consistent sides currently, uh, and they're just so, a joy to watch. They're really fun to to see when they're in full flow, and you just hope that Raúl Jiménez will stay with them. Personally, I hope that he does, just because it feels like a match made in heaven. Um, he's he's old, I think he's 29, uh, so I would, wouldn't be surprised if the bigger sides don't look at him in the same way as they would a 24, 25-year-old. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think the main threat to, to them is the loss of Ruben Neves. Yeah, but, but you know, they seem to have a lot of... Um 
you know, a, a lot of depth in those positions. They do seem to have that almost, uh, who was the team we were discussing last week that just seemed to whip out young players anytime you sort of you knock someone down. Uh, it's Leicester. Um, they seem to have a very similar thing in, in terms of that. They've got, um, what's his name, Morgan, Morgan Gibbs. Morgan Gibbs-White. Morgan Gibbs-White, that, that's what it is. He, he's, you know, been a promising young player that you could see coming through and, and taking that place. Very um, different player. Morgan Gibbs-White is very, very much more of like a, an attacking number 10, whereas Ruben Neves is more of a 6-8. Um, I've seen him play a little deeper as well. Obviously, his strength has been when he's been able to, you know, stretch attacking, but I could see him playing a, alongside a more dedicated midfielder in sort of like a yeah, number 8 role. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Um what did you have for the uh, games there, by the way, just quickly, before we move on to Sheffield? So, uh, I predicted 1-0 Sheffield. I predicted 1-0 Wolves. <laughs> Do you know what? I knew it. I knew it the way you were talking about it. You, you're so crafty. You were like, well, it, on any given day, it could have even been the other way around. Do you not think so, though? I was just thinking to myself, like, Cam's predicted 1-0 Wolves. <laughs> I do agree with you, but it, it felt quite sly the way you said it. I was wondering what you had called. Um, but uh, um, three points to me is all she wrote. Oh God! And then Wolves, Everton. Uh, I had two one Wolves. I, I had gave one Everton one. Too much credit. I had one one, so it's another point for you. Oh wow! You gave Everton much too much credit. I've I've had a real Norwich this week. I'm, I'm men against boys. You're not um, you're not doing well. You started Daniel off so Fark great is, in the first the first time we did this. I um, know, and last week was so narrow. But you know what? It's it's not how you start; it's how you finish. Um, well. And speaking of, we've got Sheffield uh, next on discussion. Uh, obviously, we just talked about the showdown at Bramall Lane, um, uh, but Sheffield also mirrored Wolves in their later game, facing against Chelsea and just really just giving them the business. Um, just slapped them down, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of this was, you, I think it would be easy to look at this game and go, it was more mistakes made by Chelsea than Sheffield being amazing. But I think that this for me demonstrates how diligent Sheffield are as a side. Even late in the day, when you mean game or season, they're still focused on exploiting any crack in their opponent's armour. You know, a little bit of a mistake here from Rudiger, punished instantly. A little bit of a, you know, Kepa looking a bit unsure, instantly punished. Um, and I think that just speaks to their quality as a, t- a really diligent side. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think that Kepper should be punished. Personally, I don't think it was Kepper's fault. It took two deflections on his way through, um, you know, and he's already going one way. He managed to get a hand on it, which I think was quite good to get a hand on it. I don't think any keeper in the world is palming that to safety. I think that's a, that's a big ask of anyone. Um, it's yes, a big ask of anyone, but... Frame, but I, I'm not you know, sure it's quite fair to say that he could have done better. I, what I would say is fair is that Chelsea very much allowed the pressure to be put on them. Um, mm. Sheffield had a game plan and they executed it really well. Um, as we said, Lampard's tactics were wrong, which he himself recognised and that he changed it all halfway through. And yeah, they just they just were the better outfit. They were better drilled, um, you know, I, I think- mentally and better physically. Just on your point about Kepa, I think the reason that people are quick to point fingers at Kepa is just because of, um, you know, quite how expensive he was. And you look at similar players, I mean, you look at Virgil van Dijk. Virgil van Dijk for Liverpool is like, 
a, a sort of demigod almost. Anytime there's any sort of issue, he's there to just, you know, mop things up and he, he's there very reliably. Or if you look at, you know, just other keepers, I'd like look at someone like Dean Henderson, the few defensive mistakes Sheffield have made, he's always equal to them. So I think people have just come to expect, yes, it's, it's maybe a little bit unreasonable to expect someone to make a world-class, unbelievable save. But if you would expect it of anyone, it's the most expensive keeper in the world. So... It's true. I think the only caveat that you'd need to add to that is that one of the main reasons why he was so expensive is because he came from a club that only employs Basque players, mm. of which there is a massive premium on his head. Um, you know, Bilbao... That's very true. ...have a very limited pool of players from which they can draw on, and anyone that wants to pick up a player like that has to pay through the roof. Real Madrid... That explains the price tag. That explains the price tag, but you know Chelsea must have seen the value in him to to spend that much, you know. For sure, I mean, I personally, if I was spending seventy million on on a goalkeeper, I would imagine that you could get one of any number of very good goalkeepers. I, I mean, Jan Oblak is the one that springs to mind because he's always linked to Chelsea. But would he have been more than seventy million? I, I, don't I think Atletico would be pushing up probably 100 million for him or something so? like that. Probably, I mean, he is probably the best in the business, so I, I don't see them letting him go easily. That's fair. I mean, I, I guess the main thing is that I, I think that Chelsea could and should have spent their money better. Mm. Well, I think that that's that's it. It's always the case. I mean, we're going to move on to discuss uh, Arsenal in a minute. I think that's um, a criticism that's often levied at. Um, Nicola Pepe, who I think has had a, a solid season, but because of that 72, pillion, 72 million pound price tag, it's always going to be a millstone around these players' necks. The same thing with Harry Maguire, the same thing with Pogba. These huge transfer fees that we're now seeing do create a, a sort of expectation for these players to have. And if they don't live up to that, you know, it's in very recent memory that Cristiano Ronaldo was an 80 million pound player. Uh, for, for Real Madrid so these players are costing around the same amount so people kind of have that ingrained expectation for them so if these players then come out and aren't just not good but so aren't just yeah not good but are actively poor um, it can be an easy target for criticism yeah it's it's true I mean the only thing to add to that is that since then when he was the most expensive player in the world at 80 million pounds that highest most expensive player in the world has like almost tripled so Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I know what you're I, saying. I, I that agree, it's but it's a frame of reference that he should be of a similar value. But the market has moved on so much. Um, it definitely, it definitely has massively in the last few years. But I, I just meant it's, it's a frame of um, frame of reference for sure. I, I think, I think what you said is true that it is a, a weight around their necks because so much is expected of these players, and if you don't perform like Virgil Van Dijk every week, then you're a failure. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really hard to deal with, especially when there's such a premium on young talent and you get these 23, 24-year-olds being bought for these vast quantities of money and just expected to be world-class immediately every week. Yeah, no, it, it, it can be a huge amount of pressure. But on to Arsenal and their uh, derby against Spurs. Speaking of pressure... Uh, so, a really, really interesting game, this. It was a derby... Mourinho did what he, he likes to do in derbies. But I just wanted to postpone the uh, chat about the actual game for a second. Because what I did, wanted to quickly discuss was, um, did you hear Martin Tyler's commentary? Yeah, really strange. 
that guy is out to pasture. I mean, Jesus Christ. He was one of the, like, just <laughs> classic commentators growing up. I mean, you used to hear him all the time on matches. He was obviously the voice in FIFA, so that was probably where I heard his voice more than anywhere else. What was he on about? Do you want to break it down a little bit for the listeners? Yeah, so Martin Tyler, obviously, you know, legendary Premier League commentator, just had these, these very weird tangents in the game. He came out uh, at one point, uh, I think he described Nicola Pepe as... Uh, as a, a real a real main course of a player and then sort of which is a weird <laughs> weird way to describe it but then went on to sort of go oh well fair, you know I mean, like football, Alan. football commentators have a long history of saying like things in a weird way I think peter drury ray hudson i think that's 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 not my issue with it my issue was that he then a player i quite like that he then went on to say, ooh, shouldn't mention food around you alan your wife packs your lunches for you although i'm sure penny's quite a good cook I was, just, I was sat. I was watching that game. I was like, "What, the, what is he talking about?" It's a strange insight then, into uh... what. And he he then went on um, Danny Ceballos, um, camera pan to him, and he sort of gave this little sort of infam- like little uh, vignette. He was like, "Oh, Danny Ceballos used to be a trainee hairdresser," which I guess is maybe kind of interesting if you're not in the middle of a hard fought derby. But then again, elaborates and was like, and of course, you know, in lockdown, everyone needs a trim. He could be making more money as a barber than a Premier League footballer. And again, I was just like, I was barely watching the game. I was like, Martin, what are you saying? I mean, yeah, beyond the uh, heavy-handed suggestion that frontline workers get paid more than footballers, which is, <laughs> if anything, extremely removed from reality, uh, does feel a little weird. The only thing that I would say to that is that, you know, you might be stretching the friendship in calling what we saw this week a hard-fought derby. Yeah, well, in terms of, like, the result. Sure. It it, it could have gone either way for, for most of the game. Um, it was a close derby. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a close... Yeah, I think maybe it was sort of a, a battle of the two sides' uh, inadequacies. But um, talking about that game, uh, Spurs doing enough to beat Arsenal... Uh, Arsenal will probably be pretty disappointed with that, and Spurs pretty happy. Yeah, I think so. I, I don't think either side did enough to win, so Arsenal will be lamenting their missed opportunities, and Spurs, you know, happy to capitalise and, and get three points where they didn't necessarily do enough to to justify getting. I thought they I thought they took advantage of Arsenal's mistakes well. I think obviously the the first goal was. Um, the big mistake, uh, Kalasnach passing back to David Luiz. Um, I would say it's mostly Kalasnach's fault. I'd say if David Luiz was a little less flat-footed, he could have coped well. But Son still has work to do there. David Luiz could have done much for that. Son still has work to do there. the first time I've said that sentence. I don't think it's his fault. <laughs> well, my, my, my issue with him was I, I saw it as like kind of a 50-50 between him and Son. And Son's faster, but David Luiz must have 20 pounds on him. And he was sort of just shoved off the ball by him. Um, so that was very impressive by Hume and Son. He then, yeah. you know, continued on with a really deft finish. Um, but it was just really disappointing for Arsenal because they'd opened the game not three minutes earlier with an absolute rocket of a goal from Alex Lacazette. It was an unbelievable goal, um, especially for a player that has struggled for confidence and struggled for goals in the last few game weeks. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think it just this this game, in a lot of ways, I think epitomised Arsenal's season as a whole. Um just absolute world-class quality performances up front and then just calamity at the back. Um, and again, you know, Spurs' winner was from a corner and the corner was scored by Toby Alderweireld, who was being marked by Kieran Tierney, who, Kieran Tierney is a good player, but he looks like he's about 15. Why yeah, he is he is marking... A small man. 
why is he marking one of the you know most historically threatening headers of the ball in the league? It, it doesn't necessarily. Uh, yeah, it's not not a tactical decision, is it? It's it's not a great decision. I mean, I always think you know you should stick the tall players on the tall players. That just seems like obviously you learn that when you learn snap right so you, know, you don't you don't put the little five foot nine left back up against the six foot three center back because that's going to happen yeah and it, and it did happen and arsenal have been bad in set pieces very bad at set pieces um but it's you know it's not even like one of those situations where if they were bad because of you know individual faults it just seemed like poor planning um, and Spurs will be really happy with that. I think Spurs will be fairly happy with this week in general. Um, I think the Bournemouth result, you could say they, they could have expected to get more. I think you could say they could have expected to get less. So maybe on balance, they'll be fine with that. But this game, you yeah, know, fair. they are 37% possession. They were sitting off the ball and they had a few, you know, a fair few shots, but didn't look as, as, as likely to win the game as Arsenal did for the majority of, of the uh of the proceedings but again much like with Leicester Arsenal just let it you know let it all go and and they had one too many mistakes and those mistakes get punished yeah you're, you're right um Spurs definitely seemed the more passive of the two sides um the only thing that I would say is um as I mentioned in the um the games previously with Leicester I really feel like Arsenal and especially Aubameyang just looks knackered and yeah in the Leicester game he was really tired towards the end um, just looked like he'd, he'd run out of steam and in this game he just wasn't as sharp yes he got the first goal but he missed a really important chance when it was 1-1 um, where he hit the post uh, and he just mm. tried to hit it as hard as he could and he really had more time than he took um, and well I, I think, think it's difficult for him because he's sort of the ultimate example of one of these players we've been discussing who's <laughs> dragging a team I mean where would Arsenal be on the table without Aubameyang well, exactly, like and, and not just that. He's playing 90-plus minutes every time. And yeah. I think he's going to struggle against Liverpool this week, tomorrow. Probably, almost certainly. And I think the whole team will, because Arsenal against top-six sides. I mean, the last time that Arsenal beat a top-six side away from home, or, you know, obviously the Liverpool game is, is at, uh, at the Emirates, but it is Liverpool. But the last time that Arsenal beat a top-six side away from home was the 18th of January. Yeah, that's, that's 2015. That is a while ago. So, <laughs> you know, I, I just, it was the same against Leicester, who aren't one of the, you know, considered one of the traditional top six, uh, quote unquote. But again, just not showing the ability to put the pressure on the sides um, yeah. and, and, and paying for it as a result. Um, what scores did you have for, uh, did we cover the, yeah, we covered the other, other ones of their games. What did you have for Spurs Arsenal? I had 2-1 Arsenal. I thought they were going to have enough in the tank. I had 3-1 Arsenal. I thought they would have even more in the tank. Oh, wow, I thought you'd gone more conservative than me in that. No, no, no. I, th- I thought, um, just based on form, Spurs had not been in great form. Sure. And Arsenal had been in good form. But then again, it's a derby. It's Mourinho. So, a really difficult one to call. Um, Definitely. And now... For me. Yeah, I mean, I guess the other thing, just because it's an interesting thing to note, is that... Uh, Jose Mourinho and Mikel Arteta are in very similar positions in, in their tenures. Uh, do you think that both of them have shown that they deserve more time? Do you think you know, fans will be feeling confident, positive about the season, the, the future to come? Arteta, I would say probably. 
it's still very early doors, so it's difficult to, you know, form a full opinion. But I, he's definitely a more impressive figure to see in the dugout than Unai Emery. Um, you have a lot more confidence watching Arsenal seeing them. Mourinho, I don't know if that's as true. I mean, this is a Tottenham side that were Champions League finalists this time, you know, this time last year, and now sure. they're not even looking like they're going to qualify for Europe at all. So I, I don't know that you know Spurs will be looking at Mourinho in the same way that Arsenal might be looking at Arteta. Definitely, as well. You know, there's something new and exciting about. Arteta and about the young players coming through and, and that hasn't quite translated itself to Tottenham yet I think yeah. that he really hasn't had the time to make the side his own as he always does yeah no, no I, th- I think that's true um just quickly to roll onto the other games before uh, next week settling the score and the part that I'm dreading the roundup of the settling <laughs> the score um as we're getting just to over an hour here uh, on time uh Man City with 10 goals this week they scored a lot of goals, um, and not quite as I predicted. Um, I had 4-0 Man City-Newcastle. And I had 6-0, which puts that as a... Uh, I was watching that game, and oh. every time they scored, I was like, come on, come on, one more, one more. And they were at 4-0 for quite a while. I was like, oh. Um, Unbelievable. And they scored in, was it the 92nd minute with that really weird Raheem Sterling goal? Yeah, the the header. Uh, no, sorry, that, that was that was the Brighton game. That was the Brighton was game. The Brighton? The header. It was... Um, I can't remember. I feel like it was some sort of annoying goal to concede. Um, yeah. So but, n- zero um, points for either of us. Zero points. And then 5-0 against Brighton, which I had gone for 2-0. I thought they would have blown off most of their steam by this point. I actually had 2-0 as well. So no points again. Uh, let me just double check that because I was going off memory. Yeah, I had 2-0. Um, so yeah, no, some just just City blowing off steam really um, this season. We've covered that quite a bit last sure. episode. And I think, I think we, we saw this coming. Uh, but Liverpool, Liverpool 3-1 Brighton. Um, <laughs> Brighton, a doubleheader that no one really wants to take on, Liverpool and City. But, um, you know, they've already achieved safety and, you know, eight goals conceded this week. But, you know, yeah. not not the end of the world. One thing they can look at um, is a bright little kid they've got coming through, Tariq Lamptey, who, of course, came from Chelsea. He did indeed. Yeah, he looks like the real deal. Um, He's I had three Man of the Match awards in a row, I think. Chelsea will have seen him coming through the ranks for, for a while. Mm. Uh, and yeah, he, he, I think he's going to be a great Premier League player. Well, very wise to make the move. You know, we've spoken about getting those opportunities, and at Chelsea, you, I mean, it's, it's all but confirmed that he would still be behind, you know, Reese James certainly in the pecking order, if not any of the other players. So Absolutely. to get that chance at Brighton seems to have been a really, really sharp, smart career move for him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wish him all the best moving forwards. Um, Burnley will be quite happy with the point at Anfield. Um, it's not something that a lot of teams have managed this season, but Liverpool do seem to be winding down a little bit. Um, they did start a couple of youngsters. They didn't seem too fast at the final whistle. I think they're just happy at the moment, which uh, they have every right to be. Sure thing. Um, wait, slow down. Let's do uh, the Brighton-Liverpool scores. Yep, the Bro- uh, Brighton and... Um, but just do Liverpool once, Brighton and Burnley. So I had, for Liverpool-Brighton, I had 3-1. Uh, you had three one. Wow, I predicted three nil. This uh, this week it was a real kind of showing up of of everything I said last week. I I said that I'd overestimated Brighton, so I underestimated them this week. I said that I loved James Ward Prowse, and he missed a penalty yeah. that he got from diving. And I said that Wilfred Zaha wasn't good enough, and he's got an absolute worldie against Chelsea. <laughs> and yet you still seem to have beaten me here. Um, 
And comfortably so. I mean, I think that's as much a comment on you as it is on me. Uh, I'll say so. Liverpool-Burnley, uh, I had 3-0 Liverpool. I had 3-1 Liverpool, so I will take a point. Thought you will. You uh, got three from that, so well done. <laughs> I don't think it's enough. I, I, that's like a consolation goal at this point. And the final game of the game week to discuss, uh, Everton-Southampton. Um, and the main talking point here was Danny Ings getting another goal, which interestingly means he's third in the golden boot race between Aubameyang and Vardy. Um, so... Don't think I'd he's going to catch Vardy, but I don't think he'll him. catch Vardy. But it's, it's definitely something for his CV to be like third in the Premier League, uh, oh, or maybe absolutely. second. Well, I mean, he's very much still a player that has his career ahead of him, um, mm. and you know, I think he's kind of threatened to become a good player at least while he was at Liverpool. Um, yeah, but could never really find that form. Yeah, um, but you know, or he didn't have much time now, in the team. He's entering his prime, and he's at a club that clearly gets the best out of him system-wise. Yeah, that's very true. Um, what did you have for the score in this game? Um, so for the... Everton and Southampton. Everton and Southampton game, I predicted 2-1 to Southampton. I said 2-1 for Everton, so that is uh, no points. So do you have your scores rounded up? I'm not looking forward to this at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see now. Tallied up whenever you're ready. Yeah, I'm ready. I got a grand total of six points from these games. Okay. Uh, I think I got 17 points, Cam. <laughs> that's, that's an absolute not. I am so glad that this is at the back end of the episode, and I hope to God that people don't. <laughs> oh, well, well done. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> Seventeen, you think? That seems like quite a lot. Okay, well, I predict I called Watford Norwich perfectly, Sheffield Wolves perfectly, and Watford Newcastle perfectly. That's nine points, and then I got Bournemouth Leicester closer, Spurs Arsenal closer, Wolves Everton closer, Sheffield Chelsea closer, Liverpool Burnley closer, Bournemouth Tottenham closer, and Crystal Palace Chelsea closer. So maybe maybe sixteen points then. 16 to 6. It's not a Is great that week Is that for, for you Cam City. Now? Yeah, no, that's really taken the edge off. <laughs> well, congratulations. Um, you've made it 2 1. Uh, you've come from behind. You've shown that resolve. And I am now chasing the score. So, so shall well. we see if I can make it up with our score predictions for next week, which is a single game week? Let's do it. So kicking us off with Chelsea Norwich, I have said that Chelsea are going to just continue the Premier League tradition of dicking on Norwich and make it 4-0 I, I've actually what I've tried to do this week is I've tried to, to think to myself what is peak that club and I feel like mm. peak Chelsea at the moment is conceding a goal against Norwich so I've gone 3-1 I could see I could definitely see that as well um, Burnley uh, and Wolves I've said Wolves are going to get a sneaky 2-1 away win Old claim. I have gone for a crisp nil-nil. Interesting. Uh, Man City Bournemouth. Uh, I thought that Man City were going to blow off all their steam against Newcastle, but they've still got a lot of rage to expend. They do, and don't Bournemouth they? seem like willing recipients to this rage. So I've gone for their third five-nil. Wow. Well, yeah, I've gone four-nil. Um, yeah. <laughs> Stop being so conservative. I think they're going to get slapped. Uh, Newcastle Spurs. I have said one-one. 
I have also said 1-1. One, one. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, I think that's going to be a frustrating game for Tottenham fans. I think that Liverpool will come to the Emirates and beat Arsenal three goals to one. Interesting. I I actually have gone for one nil to Liverpool. Again, I feel like in peak Arsenal mode, I think that Liverpool are going to leave the game open to them by not yep. bringing the fight as much as they have done until the last few game weeks. I think Arsenal are going to start to maybe think like, oh, maybe I can get something from this game. And then they're going to concede <laughs> some stupid goal. That does sound about right. Um, I think that Liverpool will... It'll maybe be like a 1-1 around 60 minutes and then Klopp will release the Dragons. That does ease, uh, ease away, yeah. yeah. Curtis Jones uh, is an exciting player that we haven't talked about this week. Um, but he also, you know, in, in the spirit of discussing exciting young English talent, looks like a player that is going to get many more opportunities next season at Liverpool. Yep, Curtis, the ultimate scouser, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah. Everton-Villa, I think that this is going to be a really interesting game. I think Everton have been a bit patchy, and I think that Villa are going to show like a bit of grit here, and I think it's going to be 2-2. Interesting. I've gone 2-1 to Everton. To Everton. I think it's going to be a close game, yeah, I agree. But I think so. I think Villa are going to really struggle for it, but won't have enough. Uh, Leicester-Sheffield, uh, again, difficult, because both teams have had ups and downs. Um, much like the Sheffield-Wolves game, I could kind of see this going either way but I think that Leicester are probably going to take it 1-0. Interesting, yeah. I, I've i gone 1-1. I can also see that, yeah. Very, very, very possible. Um, Palace United, I have just gone ahead and gone for the what is rapidly becoming the United score, 3-0 to United. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, no no vision, Cameron. No no ambition in your scorelines. Well, I went uh, for 6-0 last week. <laughs> Look where it got me. It did not get you far, that's for sure. Um, I've gone for 2-1 to Man U. Okay, that, okay. I think that Crystal Palace will be watching the games and, and they'll see maybe a crack appearing in Manchester United's armour, but Man U will have enough. Uh, Southampton-Brighton, I think that that is a Danny Ings goal that is, is all that is done there. So 1-0. One 1-0. Nil. One nil. I, think, I think that's got 2-0 written all over it. Interesting, okay. And rounding us up with the... Biggest game for me of the week, despite being a game involving two of the relegation sides, West Ham and Watford, I think ends in the only way that it could with a 1-1. I've gone 2-2. Yeah, I think... Um, Points shared. I think I also just want to see that, so there's like more interest. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I hope it's going to be a really fun game to watch. Well... That's about us. Uh, we are coming to time. So, Rupert, thanks as always for having a chat. No worries, Cam. Good to catch up. Congratulations on your win. Uh, Thank you. It feels really good. And thanks to everyone for listening. Catch you next week. Take care, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron MacDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.